Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I wanted to make sure to remind everybody, I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, but I didn't do it until the end of the episode, very crafty of me, see who actually watches this thing all the way through. Um, so now I'll put it up at the front of the episode here that I have put together a resource for you guys on my blog. Uh, the, it's mncriticalthinking.com and on the menu button on the top of the front page there is a critical Q&A questions uh, button and if you click on that you will go to a single page on my blog that has from beginning to end every question I've been asked. You can search that page uh, you know, just a control F and, and search through there. And if you have a question that you think I might have addressed before or some subject matter that may have been looked at before, you can search there and see. I've, um, I've been told, you know, that maybe the idea is that by not answering repeat questions or referring people back to earlier Q&A episodes that maybe I'm brushing them off, but I'm not. That's not really not my attitude about it. I want to make it clear that I am trying to provide fresh answers and content every episode because I think that's what my con consistent, constant viewers and subscribers would appreciate and want rather than rehashing the same thing over and over again. So that's why I try to take pains to refer people back to earlier answers I've given. Now in cases where a person asks me a question that I've already answered but I have new information or more to say about it, I will address that question again. Um, and that's happened a few times where I've, I've had variations on you know, certain subjects or topics and addressed those you know, newly. Uh, you know, subjects like the Rehabilitation Project Force or the uh, technology, you know, the, the technique of, of Dianetics or Scientology auditing. I mean, these are huge subjects. There's all kinds of things to say about them and I couldn't possibly answer every question in one, you know, five minute, ten minute slot. So, um, so the, you know, the, recur the, the idea of having recurring subject matter is certainly not a problem for me and I really hope nobody feels like I'm brushing them off when I refer you back to an earlier episode it's only in the sake of um, you know, keeping the content on the channel fresh and new. And, um, and also, you know, when I gave a good answer, I was happy with that answer. So I don't necessarily want to give it again. <laughs> All right, so I think the point's been made on that. Check it out the page and let me know if that's helpful to you and if you have any suggestions about how to make it better. I'm wide open. You know, it was just an idea that I had. I actually put it together for my 100th episode. I wanted to announce it to everybody then, as I had it up then, but I totally forgot in all the frantic you know, energy of, of doing that live stream to even mention it. So there you go. Now let's go ahead and get on with the questions for this week. VSGL. I'm no lawyer, so can you explain how the Church of Scientology can hide behind the U.S. First Amendment for all of its abuses? I would think that in the free exercise of religion, you would still have to abide by the law regardless of whether the person is or was a member or not. Alright, I'm not a lawyer either, and I haven't particularly gone and talked for hours on end with lawyers about this, so what you're going to get here is an unlawyerly answer from my understanding from the reading and study that I've done on this 
as to how this works. Um, basically, in the United States, the First Amendment guarantees freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and uh, the free exercise thereof. It seems that the courts in the United States are very, very cognizant of um, and very careful around that uh, free exercise clause. They don't want to be messing around with that because because um, it's a con it's literally a constitutional right. It is one of the most basic rights afforded to U.S. citizens. Uh, it exists, as I understand it, from various interpretations for the protection of the religions themselves as well as the protection of the, the non-religious or the, the government and the, and, the, and the individual people. It goes both ways. So how this has been interpreted in various court cases and specifically in regards to Scientology is that if a person agrees to rigid discipline or strict rules and guidelines that a that a church uh, runs itself under, and this includes any church. Uh, think, for example, like separate out from Scientology for a second and look at Catholicism or like, like a Catholic, you know, like monks in a monastery. Uh, you know, these are people who lead, or, you know, who lead a very ascetic life. Uh, same with uh, maybe Buddhist monks. You know, they don't um, necessarily eat everything they want to. They don't necessarily get as much sleep as they want to. In the case of Catholic priests, they don't get, um, I think I said Catholic monks before. I meant, you know, monks, just Christian monks. <laughs> um, but in the case of Catholic priests, they you know they take vows of celibacy, so do monks. Um, so they don't have, because of the rules and restrictions of their religious practice, they don't have the same freedoms that you and I have. And that's all voluntary, and at least it's viewed as voluntary under the eyes of the law. You have freely given yourself over to the, um, the rules, the regulations, and also the disciplinary practices of that religion. So if you're in a group that calls for flogging, right, you know, uh, or beatings or something like that as a form of religious expression, then the court is going to back up the religion because it's viewed by the court that such floggings or disciplinary measures, harsh measures like denying food, denying sleep, uh, maybe, you know, being, um, do we, having things done to you that that some of us who are not agreeing to that might consider even a form of torture if it was done to us. Well, if it's done to a person under the uh, strictures of their religious practice and they're doing it voluntarily of their own free will, as viewed under the law, uh, which can become a gray area, I'll talk about that in a second, but if, if the law views it that way, then you don't have a leg to stand on if you later change your mind and go to the courts and say, they tortured me, they denied me food, they denied me sleep, they you know, flogged me. The court is going to go, well, look, dude, you were there as a member of a religion that is recognized by the United States, of course, as a religious group. And we don't have any say in telling that religion how it is to go about conducting itself. Now, the line, of course, on this would be drawn when it comes to something like murder, right? Or uh, something like, you know, gross child abuse, where you're, you know, like sexual abuse, this kind of thing. I mean, there are lines 
drawn on this. As a non-lawyer, I can't tell you exactly where those lines are drawn, and I suspect that it's a rather gray area. Um, you know, if sexual rights and practices are part of your religious practice and you're there voluntarily having sex, I don't think you're going to have a leg to stand on if you later claim you were raped. And I'm talking about guys and girls, right? Men and women on that. Uh, as an example, right? I don't think there's any situation where you could, uh, you know, beat up on a child or sexually molest a child in the name of religious practice because I don't think that a child would be viewed under the eyes, you know, of the law as having been a willing and knowing and informed participant in that practice. And, I, and from my understanding, that would be the, the guiding principle. So in a recent um, podcast that I did, we talked about, I think this was with uh, Jonathan Streeter, actually the last one I did with the uh, ex-Mormon. We talked about the fact that at any time while you're part of a religious group, you can stand up and say, I resign. I no longer agree to be part of this religious practice and I am no longer a member. And if you just simply say those kinds of words, you don't have, there's no set words to it, but something to that effect, then you are no longer under, uh, you know, you would no longer be acknowledged by a court as volunteering to be part of that practice. And therefore, that religious group could no longer do those things to you because you've made it clear you're not a willing and active participant in the religious practice, okay? So that's how you would get out of a situation like that. It's, it's, that's the voluntary line. If you never say those words, if you don't ever you know, say, hey, look, this is not okay with me. I'm not okay with what you people are doing to me. I don't want this. I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. If you don't say those words, then it's assumed that your earlier agreements of being part of that practice still stand. And so you're opening yourself up to potentially being abused according to whatever the rituals, rules, and guidelines of the religion are. This is all the way across the boards, every religion recognized within the U.S. So this is why in the mid-90s when Mark and Claire Headley brought a case of human rights violations and uh, and, and you know, and criminal activity against the Church of Scientology, it never even got past the discovery phase. You know, the the initial phases of the of the uh, legal system to even make it into a court and even make it in front of a jury, because the judge said, "Look, you guys were there as Sea Org members at the international base, and we acknowledge that there were things that were done that were kind of uncool, but to say that those were human rights violations." doesn't really hold water because you were there voluntarily and you never said you weren't. So, um, and I don't know that the judge actually said those words, but that was basically the reason why it got thrown out. So that's why having learned about this and having learned about the fact that you can say, I resign, I'm no longer part of this, I don't want this anymore, and that gets you a pass out of the whole situation. Right? This is an important piece of information to have because then the, the church organization now no longer has First Amendment protection to abuse you once you make it clear that you're not a willing participant anymore. All right, so I think I've made all that pretty clear. 
And as far as I understand it, the reason why this is so important is because if the government or a judge who is not part of that religious practice doesn't understand the dogma, the beliefs, you know, the rituals of it, starts making arbitrary rules about what you can and can't do in a church to express yourself religiously, then they're crossing a line over into your rights, right, to, as, a, as a believer. If you want to go practice the religion of Ugg-Ugg and eat mushrooms on, you know, every Tuesday, um, you know, a court should not necessarily be able to, in a free society, should not be able to step in and say, no, you can't have mushrooms every Tuesday. You have to have red meat. You know, they can't, they, you, you don't want to give the law or the courts that kind of power in a free society where you want to have uh, a free expression, free expression of art, of speech, and of religion. This is just something that the Founding Fathers decided was very important, and the courts have interpreted those words and that, that uh, expression of the First Amendment in that way. Now, when it comes to destructive cults, where the courts kind of lose it is under the, under the matter of undue influence. Um, or coercive persuasion. This is not necessarily, a, 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 in the United States, a recognized thing, right? In other words, they don't recognize brainwashing, right? Or mind control or, you know, whatever words you want to use to describe the manipulation that occurs through deception and lies and, and peer pressure and things like that. So, um, the court assumes you are, you know, intelligent, able, and, uh, and voluntarily part of the whole process. And that doesn't factor in being deceived into the process and then finding yourself trapped in a situation through various manipulations that keep you there, uh, really, at that point, against your will, right? And if you don't know to say, I don't want to be part of this, but even more, even, even more deeply, even if you did know to say, I don't want to be part of this, but you're married into it, all of your friends are in it, like there's all these social dynamics that enter into the situation that don't, don't really get a say in a court of law as I understand it. Now, I'm, if any of you out there have uh, information or knowledge about this outside of Scientology or with Scientology cases, please let me know in the comments section because this is obviously something I'm still learning about and I'm more than happy to learn more about it and pass that information on to you guys. So go ahead and leave any comments or, or notes about this um, on this video and, uh, and maybe we will take this subject up again, but I think I've, I've talked about it enough for now. Josh Maker. I heard an amusing story on the Surviving Scientology podcast about Sea Org member Jeff Walker who escaped the int base and got Riverside County Sheriff's deputies to escort him back in to retrieve his belongings. Since they obviously can't try to detain him in front of law enforcement, the Sea Org had to just stand and watch. A police escort strikes me as a brilliant and seemingly foolproof way to make an easy break, yet this is the only example I've ever heard of this strategy being used. There is the drawback of it being guaranteed to get you declared, but anyone who blows instead of routing out gets declared anyway, right? Am I missing something here? It seems to me this should be a common practice. Okay, a couple points on this one. This is a good question. A person has, uh, you have to recognize that there are, again, social dynamics and psychological factors at work here, right? 
if you take off from, from a, a situation like the int base and the C organization there, you're fleeing a situation of abuse, mental, psychological, emotional, um, you know, and, and physical, in, in some cases, uh, abuse. So the idea of just walking back into that situation, even with police as an escort, is just not something that a lot of people are up to doing. And, you know, it, it might sound easy to you, perhaps, not having been in that situation or not necessarily, you know, recognizing all that, that there's years of abusive practices that this person has endured. And once they get away from that, it, there are some, believe me, there are some very serious mental landmines that you have to, uh, you know, walk over in order to face going back into that situation. Um, and I was not at the Ant base, but I can tell you that even uh, at Big Blue in the, the Pacific base, the Big Blue buildings where I worked, I went back there, uh, what, th three or four years after I had left because uh, I was speaking at a conference that was just a few blocks away and I made an effort to go over there and walk around the block of my old stomping grounds and I can tell you that it was not easy for me to do that. I was did not know what to expect, I did not know what kind of reactions I was going to get and I don't think that it's just every person who has the, the will and the strength to go face the people who have uh, been their friends, been their allies, been their confidants, been, uh, you know, the comrades in arms, like whatever term you want to use for very, very close relationships, you take off from that, there is a, there is a betrayal there, right? That you just, you, you just can't just blow that off. You can't just say, well, that just doesn't exist or screw those people. It doesn't really work that way, right? Uh, at least not as I understand it, and at least not in my experience. I, my stomach was doing flippy flops like the entire time that I was uh, there and I put on a good front but you know it was a very nerve-wracking and, and uh, anxious experience for me to go back there and I was not behind locked gates and that sort of thing but you know I had a security force and I had my own you know history of abuses and stuff with that organization so I can only imagine as 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 nerve-wracking as an experience as it was for me to then get the police involved and go back into the int base I mean man you know that was ballsy I'm just gonna say right now very courageous on the part of Jeff Walker to do that the other factor is that obviously in doing so he made it clear to the police that he was no longer part of Scientology that that business of, um, now I'm just assuming this, but I'm, I, it would seem to me that it makes sense that he would have expressed that to them. Um, had he not done that, had he just gone back you know, to the base, then he could still be under the you know, authority of the church to some degree as a church member, right? But pretty clearly when you, you know, take off, you've now said, okay, I'm no longer part of this anymore. Had he gone back without the police, they might well have said, no, you, we're not going to let you in. Excuse me. So there's also that factor too, right? Like he had, if he really wanted his stuff back, he was going to, and he didn't want to play by their rules, then he had to bring the, the police along. I don't know that so many other people who take off from there are as attached to their stuff. Uh, you know, I don't know if Jeff was making a point specifically or trying to shove it in anybody's face or something. I, I don't know. Um, 
but I know that a lot of people who get out of there, they don't ever want to go back. They don't ever want to see it again or have anything to do with it again. Um, because you know, there's, there's a thing called PTSD, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's a real thing. And people who come out of a situation like the international base, uh, of Scientology, it's not, it would be no surprise that they might have symptoms that would, you know, be indicative of PTSD. So, so basically it's all those hurdles that would need to be crossed that make that not a commonplace activity and not something that a lot of people would want to do. So I hope all those factors kind of mix into an answer that makes sense as to why you don't see a whole lot of people doing that. AC. To what extent is the Universe Core used to motivate staff and C organization members? During your time on post, did you ever see them deployed to help crew move up the bridge? The Universe Core is a C Org thing, and it's something that L. Ron Hubbard laid out in about two sentences in um, the birthday game issue. I've talked about the birthday game before. Um, it's the it's an expansion sort of game where orgs, uh, the staff of various orgs, play against each other to try to produce more and, and expand more. And the birthday game winners get awards and this sort of thing, but the ultimate prize uh, is the universe core. And that is supposed to be achieved when the org makes it to the size of old St. Hill. St. Hill is the organization that L. Ron Hubbard ran personally in England in the mid-60s. It was supposedly very big and very hop in place and there were a bunch of people there. Of course, there were a bunch of people there. He was calling people from all over the world to come there and train under him personally. And he was lecturing and, and teaching people. So, you know, there was a pretty big incentive to go. It wasn't like any other organization that's ever really existed in Scientology, but it's the standard by which all organizations are now compared. And so there were numbers initially assigned to this, like 200 students, 20 auditors, 1,000 auditing hours done every week. Uh, this sort of, you know, these sort of statistics that orgs were supposed to build up to. Um, that all got kind of thrown by the wayside and uh, Miscavige said, okay, you just have to um, get above the make break point. You just have to be viable. You have to be making money and paying your bills and paying the staff. And it sort of, um, you know, went from one set of arbitrary rules and ideas to another set of arbitrary rules and ideas. And, very, very few orgs are, have, have gotten this big or, or stay that big for very long. They might get pushed for a little while up to that level, but then they just drop back down. Orgs like Tampa, Stevens Creek in San Jose, Orange County, um, you know, these are orgs that have achieved St. Hill size and then, you know, dropped and crashed and burned shortly thereafter. This has been a thing that's been pushed since the 1980s. Hubbard first wrote about this in 1982. So, all that background being there, now the Universe Core is the prize. If you make it to St. Hill Size, the staff get the Universe Core. So what is that? It's a group of Sea Org members who go into the org and deliver the OT levels, those upper confidential levels, to the staff right there in their organization. Um, you know, we talk about how when you sign a staff contract, you get free courses and free auditing as an exchange for the work that you do. So let's say I join staff at, at Denver Org right here in town and I start working for them and we somehow, you know, build it up and, and I've been working there and I've been getting my auditing and I've been getting my training. Well, Denver can only take me to the level of clear. 
I can't go higher than that within the Denver organization. That's all city churches, all class five organizations or city level churches, Milano to um, Perth to uh, Stuttgart to Denver to Los Angeles to you know or, uh, Portland. All these city level churches can only go to the state of clear. They don't deliver the OT levels. So the whole thing about the Universe Corps coming in is it's a specially trained group of Sea Org members who deliver those special OT levels right there in the org. You don't have to fly off to a Sea Org base like Los Angeles or Clearwater or Flag to get those OT levels and you don't have to pay for them as a staff member. The public don't get them for free, the staff do. So that's the big prize. I've only seen a couple times when the um, when orgs supposedly made it to St. Hillsize and were sent a team, and that team never really lasted very long, maybe a year or two. Then uh, I think the longest term I ever saw was, was, was you know, two or three years. I could be wrong about that. It might have been a little bit longer, it might have been a little bit shorter, but that was Orange County, and that was in the 1980s. Um, then there was uh, there was a Universe Corps that was sent to Latin America at one point, um, and that lasted months. I mean, they were hardly down there at all. The Universe Corps teams that were sent out were constantly being ripped up. You know, they'd send like, you know, it had to be a team of about four, four or five Sea Org members, but then one of them would get pulled for something and another one, or the org statistics would go back down below St. Hill size and obviously crash and burn. And the Sea Org would go, yeah, you don't get them anymore, and they'd pull them back out. Because the Sea Org's always desperate for personnel. They never have enough people to get all the stuff done that they're trying to get done. So that was what I saw as far as uh, the Universe Corps arriving anywhere. I think there was one team that actually went to Milano. I think Milano went St. Hill size and Stuttgart maybe. Don't know if, I don't remember with Stuttgart if they got their Universe Core team or not. But um, then there was a deal worked out like with the um, Los Angeles area organizations and with the, with the, with the ones in Florida and, and the, in the Clearwater area like Tampa that they would just go to their closest Sea Org base and get their OT levels there. And they, again, weren't necessarily supposed to pay for it, but the Sea Org orgs, FLAG and the Advanced Org in Los Angeles, uh, you know, serve as some of the staff some of the time, but they weren't free, they were delivery organizations and they were supposed to serve as public. So to just fo foist off a bunch of staff on them and not have them paying for their services got really weird. It was this weird sort of, like, you know, a senior executive might say that they could do that, but L. Ron Hubbard's policy said a service organization can't just give away its services. And so it was kind of like, well, if there was a choice between auditing a staff member for free and a public paying person who was paying thousands of dollars for every block of 12 and a half hours of their auditing, obviously the service organization was going to service the public paying person. So, um, so that was kind of a, you know, foot bullet for management and the staff. I don't, I don't know too many staff who actually made it to OT that way. So yes, it was constantly pushed as an incentive, as a PR, woohoo, yeah, get the universe core. But when it came to, you know, the rubber meeting the road, not so much. 
And uh, it was basically kind of a big flop. And now, of course, none of these orgs are anywhere near St. Hill's size. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of, kind of the, at this point for the staff, I think they all sort of just go, to, yeah, whatever. And, uh, you know, I don't think that there's really a whole lot of realistic uh, thinking on the part of the staff that they're going to get the universe score. MM. In recordings of Hubbard's talks, it often seems that he is presenting his theories and space opera in a tongue-in-cheek fashion. He's laughing and so is the audience. I wonder whether in early days he and his audience actually believed it or whether it was more understood as entertainment, as fiction, and only sometime later the lines blurred and people started believing. No, absolutely not. Hubbard definitely was pushing off the tales of uh, whole track, you know, earlier civilizations, space opera stuff. He was definitely talking about that in a very serious tone. Um, now, the laughing and the joking that you hear going on in the lectures is because Hubbard was telling jokes and making, you know, fun of things and um, trying to be an entertaining speaker. You know, mo a lot of his lectures are that way, especially his, um, his more public-facing lectures when he was giving lectures to, uh, you know, just small groups of auditors on very technical things. You didn't see as much of that, but in the in some of the more open lectures and, and, and famous lectures that you might hear him talking in, you'll hear him being more jovial and, and, uh, and trying to you know, keep the crowd interested and entertained. But that doesn't mean that they were all joking and sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink about you know, what he was talking about. He meant what he was saying. When he said that you know, there were earlier civilizations that, that thetans and spiritual beings had been part of, and that they had been implanted and, and given commands and that, you know, people live life after life after life and they have to undo this stuff and here's the technique to do it. He, he wasn't joking around about any of that. Um, he liked to tell stories, um, which he claimed were his own experiences from the whole track, right, as a race car driver and spaceship operator and uh, you know, uh, uh, what was it, a military scout, you know, and various other stories he would tell. Uh, he might have told those in a, in a humorous vein to sort of, you know, be, again, be entertaining, but, um, but no, he, he wasn't telling that like it was some farcical sort of thing. That, that wasn't the spirit with which that information was delivered. And, um, you know, Hubbard, Hubbard really took himself seriously the whole time as a philosopher and as a researcher. And at least that's, that was the words that he used and that's how he came across to people like me. Now, I wasn't around in the 50s and I'm, and I'm told, and I think I commented on last week, that the 50s were a much looser time in terms of experimentation and how people were acting. It wasn't so rigid and there weren't so many rules and so many guidelines. But the subject matter was still something that all of them were thinking was real and that they were getting gains from and they were using this stuff and having all kinds of woohoo kind of experiences. Uh, you know, recalling the time they, you know, blew up planets, you know, 50 million years ago and, uh, and you know, gave themselves headaches now as a result. <laughs> because you know? <laughs> that's kind of how that stuff is looked at is, oh yeah, I have this uh, chronic pain in my knee and that's because 25 million years ago, I, you know, shot out some, some guy's leg or something, or I was the king of, uh, 
you know, Atlantia and I ordered that, you know, every third male have his leg chopped off in uh, punishment for defying my tax laws or something. I mean, they, they got all kinds of convoluted sort of thinking going on in the, in the world of Scientology, but they try to find the reason why they might be having problems of some kind right now, whether it's a physical problem or a mental problem. And, uh, and they'll assign it to something they did or something that was done to them earlier lifetimes ago. Hubbard made it very clear in the materials of Scientology that nothing that's happened to you this time around really matters at all. You could be, you know, you could have been in the most abusive home ever growing up, but if you're still alive and kicking and doing Scientology, that stuff didn't really have anything to do with why you're in such sorry shape now. The reason you're in such sorry, sorry shape now is because of stuff that happened to you way back, long, long, long time ago. And the stuff that's happened to you now is just a re-stimulator or something that is acting on you now that reminds you subconsciously of the real heavy stuff that happened all those years ago. So, um, so again, taken very seriously. Jeff Smith, you came out and said you were an atheist. I've always thought atheists believe 100% there is no God. I always felt it takes as much faith to claim there is no higher power than to say there definitely is one. As a critical thinker, I would have thought you would have landed as an agnostic, which I think believes you cannot answer the question with proof one way or the other, so they accept that we just don't know if there is a higher power. I could be totally wrong about what atheists and agnostics believe, so could you explain the difference between them and why you felt more comfortable as an atheist rather than an agnostic. There are so many different interpretations and ideas about this stuff that it's, it's hard to be definitive about it. So all I can do is tell you my decisions and understandings of it and hope that that communicates you know, as best it can. But I'm not speaking for the atheist community at large or the agnostic community at large or you know, for all, all people are saying this is the only way it can be because it's, it's a very personal thing for people in the same way that religious belief is. But here's how it comes down. At first, I was calling myself an agnostic because as a point of knowledge, I realized that it is simply impossible to know one way or the other with absolute certainty that there is or isn't a God. And by know, I mean K-N-O-W as in with evidence and um, you know, proof of some kind that you can see, touch, sense, measure, experience, right? So lacking that, I decided, well, you know, you, you, I don't know, and I don't know that you can know, um, you know, the, given the, the nature of a being who could create, you know, the entire universe and us and imbue us with life. I mean, how could you even begin to contemplate or understand such a being or such a, such a force? If it's not a being, an individual person or thing, then maybe it's a, you know, some kind of universal force or something. I mean, even that, how do you get your wits around something like that? We can barely comprehend the size of the city we live in, much less the country, much less the planet, much less the universe. You know, how do you get your head around something that expansive and huge? So I decided that it was simply unknowable. And that was my own personal take on it was, I, I think it's kind of ridiculous that anybody could claim to have uh, absolute knowledge about this. And so I said, well, I'm kind of agnostic about it. I don't know and I don't think anybody else does. Um, 
but I wasn't, I wasn't trying to particularly be militant about it, but that was kind of how I approached it. Somebody then made the distinction between knowledge, which is, you know, gnosis, agnosticism, um, is, a, is, a, is a knowledge thing. Whereas atheism is a belief thing. Atheism is, and the idea uh, that, you know, a theist is a person who believes that there is a god or gods, and an atheist is somebody who does not believe that there are a god or gods. And that's really all, all there is. If you have doubts, questions, uncertainties, uh, don't know for sure about it, you're an atheist, right? If you believe, then you are a theist, you're a believer, right? And if you, so if you're in the I don't know realm, if you're in the area of, well, hell, how can you even know? That puts you in the atheist camp, at least according to every atheist I've ever talked to. And I've never talked to a believer who would say, oh no, you belong in the believer camp if you're saying you don't know, <laughs> right? They don't, that's not, how, that's not how they talk to you, right? They start trying to convince you that you should know and you can know and, and you should just feel the spirit and feel the Lord and have that personal experience and, and it's, all, it's all appealing to your emotion and, and how you feel about it, right? Well, I don't particularly feel any way about it. So I'm trying to look at it more with, uh, you know, from a, from a point of view of critical thinking. And by critical thinking, I mean, show me why I should believe it. And I have yet to be shown any compelling reason why I should believe that there actually is a higher power or force that one created us, two created the universe, three is watching over me right now and watching over all of us, four is something that, you know, now we're going to get really specific, something that, that uh, inspired people to write a Bible, that, you know, that created a, a son who came down to earth and died for all of our sins. I, I've lost the plot way before we get to any of that. I've, I've, I'm like, no, I, you know, you didn't, you didn't even get me at there, there is a higher power, uh, much less all this specific stuff about the Bible and the Quran and the, the Book of Mormon and all this sort of stuff. I'm not, you lost me way before that. So um, because I hold that position, I go in the direction of atheism. Uh, I don't believe in a God or gods. Now, I've said before that I have a hope, you know, it would, it's a really nice idea that there might be more. Uh, it's a really nice idea, and for me, a very selfish one, that we might live beyond our, you know, shedding our mortal coil, so to speak. Uh, you know, I hope there is more to our existence uh, once we're pushing up the daisies. But that's a hope. I don't believe it. I have no reason to believe that it's true. It's just sort of a, wow, that would be really nice. In the same way that it would be really nice if I would win the lottery tomorrow. Be great, but I don't believe I'm going to win the lottery tomorrow. <laughs> right? I have no reason to believe that whatsoever. Why should I? There's no compelling evidence to indicate that I would win the lottery, starting with the fact I haven't even bought a lottery ticket. So there's a, maybe a decent analogy for what I'm talking about. And that is why I am in the atheist agnostic camp. I've seen it expressed that you can be an agnostic atheist and a, a Gnostic atheist. You know, you can know for sure that there's no God. But that's not actually the default position of an atheist. The default position of an atheist, according to the 
word itself is you simply don't believe in a God or gods. It's not that you know with certainty that there is no God. That's not, the, that's not what atheists will tell you, at least not most of the atheists that I know. There are militant extremist atheists, very few of them as far as I can tell, but they do exist who will pound you and try to you know, really get on you about how there's no way, there's absolutely not. I don't go there because I don't have that certainty because I don't have any compelling reason to have that certainty either. Right? I have no evidence that there isn't one, so I, I, I keep myself open to the possibility that, hey, great, if you can uh, you know, show me compelling evidence of it, I'll believe it. I got, there's, no chip, there's no chip on my shoulder about it, right? Uh, unlike somebody like David Silverman, who I interviewed on my podcast a few weeks ago, who was very strident about it. So, you know, you get a spectrum of belief uh, within the atheist world. But that's how I understand it to be and where I'm at. Hope that, uh, hope that clarifies it. It is time for Flash Answers. Man, every time. Frank Clark. I have a friend who is a big advocate of the health brand Juice Plus. She appears to be a believer in what they sell and promote going as far as buying their product bulk and reselling, throwing parties, promoting her business within the brand. I've done some research myself and see it mostly as a scam, but the amount of involvement my friend has gotten into feels it's reached cult territory. Do you believe health cults exist? Yeah, absolutely. Of course I do. I can't speak to whether your friend's part of a health cult or not, or whether she's just really enthusiastic about what she's doing. I, I can't really tell. but. Um, cults exist, and by this I mean destructive cults, because I think that's what you're really asking. Um, in any subject, there are political destructive cults. There are sports destructive cults. There, are, uh, there, there was an instance I've, I've talked about of an acting class where the, the teacher of the acting class was a destructive cult leader, and his students were his followers, and he had them uh, dancing around you know, him for years. Uh, he, he, you know, he had sexual favors, all kinds of crazy stuff going on with this group. So you can find destructive cult mechanisms, uh, the control mechanisms, the, the us versus them thinking, the concentration on money, the you know, coercive persuasion and undue influence that exists. All of those things can happen in any group, any size, down to a relationship, down to a one-on-one -on -one cult, which I've talked to Rachel Bernstein about on this channel. So. You can check that out too. Uh, so there you go. Laurel James. Chris, when you were course supervisor, were there many new members taking classes? If not, how did you personally square that with the alleged millions of Scientologists and incredible growth and expansion? No, there were not millions of, of people coming in. There were not tens of people coming in. There was like, you know, one or two or three new course starts every week. Uh, maybe. You know, this was in Santa Barbara when I was supervising then. And I did that for many, many years, right? And there would be times where there was weeks that would go by where there were no new starts. And we always just sort of attributed it to some sort of Santa Barbara phenomenon. We weren't with the program. We weren't doing the job. We weren't getting it right. And that's actually what drove me to eventually join the C organization to try to take more responsibility and do more for Scientology because clearly my actions in Santa Barbara weren't cutting it. And this is how a lot of staff members think. I've talked to you know, hundreds of staff members from all over the world, and that's, 
that's kind of the same process, the same thinking process that goes on at all levels. So that is, uh, that's how they sort of reconcile the lack of growth with, you know, going to events and being told there's, you know, all these millions of members. Nick C. The Sea Org has ruined your relationship with eggs. Has that relationship improved at all since you've been out, or are you still an agnostic? Nick. <laughs> Um, I actually am not totally agnostic. Uh, I just had eggs the other day, actually, but I don't eat eggs that much. They are not, they are my least favorite part of a breakfast dish, and um, if given a choice, I'll probably not have the eggs. <laughs> um, because I was ruined. For anybody who doesn't know the backstory on this question, uh, we were served eggs every single day for the 17 years that I was in the Sea Org. Uh, that was breakfast, uh, almost almost every day, I should say. Sundays we got a, a pancake breakfast, but it was scrambled eggs or you know fried eggs or sunny side up eggs, but it was eggs all the time. And I got so sick of eggs that I just couldn't even look at eggs again. And when I finally left the Sea Org, I was like, I'm never having another egg for the rest of my life. Well, I've, I've since uh, calmed that down a little bit and had some eggs, but <laughs> I'm still pretty agnostic. Okay, folks, so that is our show for this week. I hope that these answers were informative, interesting, and uh, educational for you. Please leave any comments, good, bad, or sideways, in the notes section, comment section below on this video. I'm very interested in your feedback and, of course, any other questions you might have for me. I uh, collect them all up and put them in my queue and try to get to them as quickly as I can. And, of course, uh, I will always put a plug in to please throw some love and support my way because it is you guys who keep this show going and keep my channel going and keep a roof over my head. Uh, so thank you very much for those of you who are doing that. I really, really appreciate it. Every single one of you. I really do. Um, and I, you know, I'm not able to answer every single uh, donation that I get, but I want you guys to know that it means so much to me. And uh, please continue. All right. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.